Katherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week our year is 1948, and our book is Pitchin' Man by Satchel Paige. I'm going to be discussing it with my guest Luke Eplin, who is the author of the book Our Team, which is about baseball becoming integrated um, between black and white players uh, in the 1940s, specifically this year, 1948, when Larry Doby, Bill Veck, Bob Feller, and Satchel Paige were all um, working for the Cleveland Indians, uh, and they win the World Series that year. So, to summarize the book, it's um, it's a bunch of Paige's anecdotes that were put together to capitalize on his fame um, this, this particular year. Uh, it's very much written for a racist white audience, and honestly, I found the book really upsetting, even though I'm also glad I read it in the conversation that Luke and I recorded. I stumble over my words a lot, more than usual. Um, because it's really hard to discuss a book that's simultaneously showing how great Page was and his excellence, his really cerebral approach to his sport, and also the degree of racism that he's up against, including the way that he kind of has to present himself as sort of clownish or childish. Um, I think the book is worth our attention, and Luke's knowledge of Page and his achievements are worth listening to. Let's go on to our conversation. So when we started talking about doing this Satchel Page book, I didn't know how difficult it was going to be for me, a non-baseball person, to understand it and kind of catch hold of what was happening. That was not a problem at all. I, I mean, there's a few places where he assumes that the reader will know the names of the people in his life because they're all famous baseball people. Um, that I had to sort of like check on Wikipedia and stuff like that, like who is this person and where do they fit into the big picture. There was so much about this book that I guess it's just going to take us the whole episode to really talk it through. It just is such an unusual artifact, you know, like these, they're little anecdotes. It's like a collection of anecdotes from Satchel Page's life. And um, it's published in 1948. So he has a whole lot of life in front of him still. Um, he's kind of just gone from the segregated leagues to the desegregated leagues in his career, right? When this comes out. Um, yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit about like where it fits into, into his life and into baseball? Yeah. Well, Satchel Page is a mythic figure by the time this, this book comes out in 1948. He is perhaps recognizes the best black pitcher that had ever thrown by this point. Um, but he had done all of his pitching until 1948 in the Negro leagues. He's from the deep South of uh, Alabama in Mobile. And um, he, he's somebody who learns the ropes going through various black leagues in the South, the, the Negro Southern league, the Negro mid Atlantic league. He is, um, he has incredible control. He's an amazingly fast pitcher. And by the time he makes it into the actual Negro leagues, which is sort of the, the, the highest pro professional league you can get in, in black baseball. Um, he is somebody who is at the top of his game and he really knows how to sell himself. He's sort of an expert person at, storytelling. He's an expert person at creating a persona. He's an expert person at knowing what crowds want and things like that. And so he really does a great job of building himself up into a sort of larger than life figure. And at the time, not a lot of white baseball fans knew players from the Negro leagues. They might've sort of read a few things about them, but not very much. There simply just wasn't a lot of um, articles in the mainstream white presses about black baseball games, even ones that were happening in the region. Um, well, and that's and even a plot point in one of his in, in one of his anecdotes is how little press there is. Absolutely, he yeah. actually start playing. Anyway, sorry, please. Yeah, and Satchel Page soon becomes the Satchel Page soon becomes the exception to that. Um, even whenever he's my book takes place in Cleveland and whenever Satchel Page comes to Cleveland in the late thirties and the early 1940s, when he's still in the Negro leagues, 
there would be big articles about that. Satchel Foot coming to town, Satchel Page to pitch. It was never like Satchel Page's team is coming to town. These other players are coming to town. It's always just Satchel Page coming here. And so even white baseball players that had never seen a Negro League game, had never even probably seen a black baseball player play, knew who Satchel Page was. Um, but by the time that segregation, desegregation happens after World War II in 1946, when Jackie Robinson is signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers organization, Satchel Page is, is elderly, at least in athletic terms. And so he is in his 40s then. And a lot of Major League Baseball teams are desegregating with much younger players, players in their 20s, players that have presumably their best athletic years ahead of them. And so there is this sort of recognition that Satchel Page had lost his opportunity. He'd been born too early to be able to pitch into Major League Baseball. Um, the Cleveland Indians are struggling in 1948. They need some more pitching in order to keep them in the pennant race. And the Indians owner at the time was a guy named Bill Veck. He was a wild sort of owner. He was very forward thinking. He was very progressive. And he decides to roll the dice and, and sign Satchel Page. And Satchel Page coming into the major leagues, it'd be like if Paul Bunyan came into a sports league. I mean, he was just, he was larger than life. He was mythic. People wanted to see, see him. And so every time he pitched, there were just packed houses. People were literally tearing out the turnstiles. This happened at one of the stadiums. People tore out the turnstiles and just rushed into the stadium. They could not wait to see Satchel Page. And so this is where the, the book comes out of. There was a tremendous appetite particularly among white fans who had never really seen him because black fans had been seeing him forever. Like Satchel Page had been part of their athletic landscape, but white fans had not really seen him. And so they were hungry not only to see him, but to get anecdotes from his life to sort of, they knew that he was a character, they knew he was a persona, and they wanted to sort of, you know, get the best of those anecdotes uh, together. And so that's kind of how this book got cobbled together. That's that's really interesting because I um, obviously I didn't know all of that, and I knew I knew enough of it to understand that what I was reading was for kind of the white gaze. So one of the first anecdotes is about his age, and yes. it's about him being a little uncertain about his age, and it's like it's written in his mother's Bible, a certain way. Like this is his mm -hmm. birth date here, this is his birth date there, this is. Um, but then white fans wanting to know how old he is and asking him to strip essentially like yeah. take off his robe and looking at his skin and looking at his hair and wanting to look at his teeth and things like that. And um, it is kind of nauseating to read and kind of terrifying to feel like, like his body could be one of the turnstiles that's getting ripped out, you know, like that, that avidity of the fan combined with the way he has to present himself as kind of um, in this book, it's like, it's like he has to sort of phrase his intelligence as like cleverness or trickiness and right, right. that he has to talk about himself as kind of a grown up child in a way. Um, sometimes it's really, sometimes it's really uncomfortable to read, you know, it's like this. So it's the version of public, white gaze, black masculinity that, you know, that was rejected really hard in the civil rights movement just a few years later. But obviously he is actually talking about his excellence. He really is talking about his intelligence. He just has to sort of couch it in these terms that, um, I don't know. It's like he, he couches it in these terms that sort of undercut what he's actually talking about. Um, but that, that first anecdote where it's like, there's these people that are just, they want to examine and touch every part of him and feel that they have the right to do so. Um, and it's like, yes, well, if that's what happens when you try to go out to dinner or whatever, um, then it makes sense that you would also want to write this book. that's kind of circumspect about what he's actually talking about. Right. Yes. So to give you a little bit of context here, um, Satchel Page came of age during the Great Depression in the um, in the Negro Leagues. This was at a time whenever a lot of teams in the Negro Leagues were in a state of collapse. 
Um, entire leagues went under, entire organizations went under. It was a time of scraping by for black ball players in a way that it wasn't as much for white ball players. Um, and so he, in order to sort of build himself up into this uh, one man franchise, essentially, who did not need a team necessarily to make money. He was making as much money as any white superstar during the Great Depression because of the way that he was very smartly building himself into a persona and a character that could cross not only from Black fans, but could cross the color line from Black to white. And so part of the compromise that he had to make was to play to certain expectations of white fans. Um, yeah. he, white fans used to call him step and pitch it. Um, now this is sort of a play on the, the popular black Hollywood actor at the time, step and fetch it, who was, um, kind of, he too was performing for the white gaze and in, in, in a lot of ways, um, he had a sort of, you know, Cravelin mumbly, um, sort of, you know, seemingly lazy sort of, sort of, persona that he cultivated that white audiences could take comfort in. But he also was sort of playing to black audiences at the same time by getting the best of white people in those circumstances, using this persona to pursue his own objectives, things like this. And so Satchel Page was very much in that context. He would walk extremely slowly to the mound. Whenever he came out, he had this very blank deadpan demeanor. He used humor in interviews to deflect certain things. And he would sort of play to the stereotype that white fans had in mind when it suited him. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was very much conscious of all of these sorts of things. And so you see in like that anecdote that he is allowing the sort of white fans to examine his body and things like that and talk about his age. And he's also sort of recognizing that age, this age question, I mean, it's a very racially loaded question regardless, because you would have to assume that any white individual or many white individuals would know their age immediately because of the sort of superior hospitals and things like that, that they would have been raised in. Whereas it's sort of a black player like Paige, who was one of, I think, 11 children or something like that, yeah, living in yeah. a shotgun shack in Alabama, wouldn't necessarily have known its age. And so even the question of how old are you is extremely racially loaded. Um, and so, but he he's recognizing that like the age question is something that white fans are so fascinated by. And he sort of, he pretty much has an idea of his age, but he's, he's say, giving a different answer every time. Yes. And he's he's definitely playing with it, recognizing that this keeps his name in the news. They're even doing a contest where if you could prove that he pitched before 1927, he'd give you five hundred dollars, um, which, again, just created a sensation around the country. People were rushing into archives, trying to find a scrap of newspaper paper that showed the satchel page pitch before or whatever it's all racially there which is why and not to give such a long answer but no, whenever when satchel page came up to the indians there was already another um there was already another player from the negro leagues from uh that 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 had come there in 1947 his name was larry doby he was from the newark eagles which is a team in the negro national league and he got signed when he was 23 years old. He came to Cleveland to play on the Indians in 1947. He was about 17 years younger than Page, and he grew up on the opposite end of a generational divide. He looked at what Page was doing, these sorts of use of humor, the way that he played to sort of white expectations of black stereotypes and like that. And he saw, uh, he saw degradation. He saw something that he did not want to see. He thought that Satchel Page was furthering the racism that was hindering him and black ball players, and he thought that Satchel Page was very bad for uh, integration, yeah. and he let it be known to the the press, to Satchel Page, to everybody. And Page had, you know, because he'd had to grow up in the environment that he did, in the context that he did, he didn't understand why Larry Doby was so upset about that. It, it was sort of his way of playing both sides and things like that. And so for somebody of a younger generation, Jackie Robinson's generation, Larry Doby's generation, Satchel Page could be kind of an embarrassment. Um, you would not have seen Jackie Robinson or Larry Doby allowing 
fans to examine their bodies. That would have been that would have been not only uncomfortable, but just something that they that they their you know the way that they talked about their dignity wouldn't have allowed. But Satchel Paige um, was different, and I think that the problem that Larry Doby's generation and Jackie Robinson's generation had was that they focused so much on these things that we were talking about, Satchel Paige playing the game with his age, playing the game with all of these things that white fans were asking of him. And they didn't see that he was also using it to advance himself, his race, his own sort of interests, things like that. I mean, nobody did more to to help major league integration than Satchel Paige. There was just no, there was no way that white fans could deny that he was not major league worthy. Well, I want to talk to you about the barnstorming because I think that the context that you had in your book about that is actually a really, it's really key for the point that you're making right now about how much social page did. But I just wanted to put in before we go there, an anecdote where he's talking about how there's two things that make him special as a pitcher. One is his speed and the other is his control. Yeah, And he can feel as he's getting older, that his speed is decreasing slightly. And so he wants to increase his degree of control and to learn more different tricks, essentially to, to stay, um, to stay unexpectable um, in, in how he's pitching. And so he's in Mexico city and he's trying to learn to throw a curveball or to improve his curveballs. And he has this like very, very folksy way of describing it, but what he means is um, that because the uh, the elevation is so high, the air is too thin to create the the right effect for a curveball. So he injures his shoulder by trying to do a curve curveballs over and over in the high elevation, and um, he is so intellectual about what he's doing. You know, it's like, even if he's saying like, oh, it's like the air doesn't get angry, you know, like he has some folksy clownish way of saying, I'm talking about air density and elevation and how that affects baseball, you know, like, and I'm saying it in a way that is, um, I, I feel like he's, you know, he's forced into this certain code that he has to speak in. Um, that is not probably how he would speak to black audiences. And it's like how he specifically has to present himself, but what he's describing is both athleticism and also intellectualized, like understanding of what he's doing in his performance. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So when central page came up to the major leagues, it was not uncommon for whites, for white writers, even in papers like the New York times and the Washington post to describe him as a clown pitcher. Um, You saw this in the post in particular, and there would be no quotation marks around clown. There was just this sort of idea that because he had sort of fancy windups and he had these very long arms and legs and, you know, he had that sort of humor that he would occasionally use that he was more of a performer than an athlete. And what you get from actually listening to Satchel Paige and from reading his words, he did did two autobiographies. This is the shorter one. He did a much longer one later in life is that he's one of the most cerebral athletes you could imagine. He, he kind of talks in this, in this book in particular pitching man about how whenever he does injure his arm and then he kind of recovers and comes back, he's not as fast as he once was. So he's like studying batters knees. He's looking at their knees and he's looking at the way that they swing. He's, and he can sort of discern simply from noticing ways in which they, um, ways in which their form takes them, where their weaknesses are, where it's going to be hardest for them to hit a baseball. And he has such incredible control that he can put the baseball exactly there. And so that's the reason why he can pitch into his late forties, you know, an age whenever most players have retired because of uh, elderly age, he can do that because he is so smart about his craft. And he knows, I'm sure that you could you could have sat him down and talked for hours about his craft. I mean, he also says in this book that a couple people hit home runs off of them, off of him, and he's never going to throw that pitch there again. Like he is sort of logging in his mind 
um, where people are hitting and where people are not hitting. And he's able then to adjust his repertoire because of that amazing control. And so it's very unfortunate that he has to code switch and sort of talk about these things as though he were, I guess, conforming to that idea of the clown pitcher or something, or at least the sort of folksy or whatever stereotype you want to think about, because it really does, it really does mask or at least put a blanket over that incredible intelligence that he has about his own craft and how seriously he takes his craft. I mean, he yeah. is a very serious pitcher and he he makes that known quite often. Yeah. I mean, you know, I read a lot of books by and about dancers and I was thinking about how difficult it is to actually put words to even very cerebral understanding of what you're doing with your body in relation to something like music. But that the hesitation pitch, his famous hesitation pitch, the way that, um, I mean, essentially what it's doing is musicality, mm. or if it were dance, it would be considered musicality, because it's not that he's actually, it's not a feint. He's not pretending to pitch, but then not releasing the ball, which would be illegal according to the rules of baseball, right? Yes, um, so and he says that in in the book that he's not doing that. What he's doing is doing a motion that should release the ball at a certain point, but releasing the ball at a different point in the same motion, right? Right. It's it's throwing off batter's timing. In, exactly. In it's a timing issue, which is yeah. you know again, if it were dance, it would be considered musicality, and it is so difficult for people who are actually at that level of excellence to put it into words because it's almost like I think it's it's like hostile to language to have that kind of excellence you know um and I just thought it was interesting how much he was able to put into words you know like he really he really has a ton of really great language for um like the thinginess of of what he's doing, like the in, the interaction with objects. Um, and part of it, I thought it, he's like a very a thingy writer. Like he talks about, I'm using that term because we just did a Sherlock Holmes episode that actually came out today while we're <laughs> recording this. Um, and uh, Arthur Conan Doyle is also a very thingy writer. Like he's not very psychological about what happened. He's like, there's mm-hmm. paint on this cane, you know? And I think that there's a way in which Satchel Paige's writing is also... He's like, that car has a shiny clock in it, and I want a shiny clock in my car. You know, like he, yeah. or like this baseball is scratched up on the guy's belt loop, right? Yeah. That's, okay. I assume yeah. you know a lot more about scratching up baseballs <laughs> and like what that does to the actual uh, yeah. pitching. But um, the, like he has this alertness to objects. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think it's really, it's really interesting when you run across a thingy writer. Like I think Patty Smith is a really thingy writer. Also, they kind of crop up in weird places. You know, it's fascinating. You know, he because of the way that that black baseball operated, um, players would pitch year round. And so you, when you think about sort of a major league baseball season, there's spring training, and then usually the season starts in April. And the World Series happens in October, and then the players go home and they're training or they're doing something. Um, for black baseball players who did not make as much as Major League Baseball players, they would then go south into the Caribbean, they would go into Mexico, they would go into Venezuela, they would go into all of these places. And so it was almost like a year round endeavor that they did. And so Satchel Page's life was pitching to a tremendous extent. And because he was so popular and famous he would often he'd be on a team like he played for the pittsburgh crawfords and later for the kansas city monarchs and he would pitch a game for that team and then he'd have to hop into his car and drive hundreds of miles to some other small town where he could play for about three innings on a smaller team a semi-pro team a factory team any sorts of things like this that are regional and he would pitch about three innings and get about $500 and then he would come back. So he was by himself a lot. He was very solitary. He was more introverted than you would think he would be. But the point is, is that he was thinking about pitching 
all the time. He wasn't married until he got into his 40s. And so the sort of craftness and the sort of thinginess of what a baseball game is were his overriding concerns. And so um, he could talk about it, I, I'm assuming, forever. That that was just sort of the way he he was. And I think that like, you know, what this book does best is get at that sort of um get at his 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 way of approaching the game what it does worst is that it turns his life into a series of picaresque adventures um that sort of go from unlikely locale to unlikely locale and they make it seem kind of circus like in a way and they certainly sensationalize black baseball as not as professional as white baseball and you know these these players can just kind of um be on their own and just pitch for random teams and go into Venezuela and see snakes and all these other sorts of things um it's certainly it's certainly um i mean it's it's demeaning structurally as well as linguistically at times yes yeah i um i mean like many of these texts where it's like it's more uncomfortable to see somebody who's making their way under really corrosive degrees of racism than it is to you know it's like there's a lot of really racist texts by white people that kind of yeah get grandfathered in as classics and then it's just really uncomfortable to read this in some parts even though he's clearly showing a great deal of sophistication in many different ways it's but it's just, I don't know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways in which people who um, are struggling out from under whatever kind of oppression, like the person just behind them gets the brunt of some of the judgment. Yeah, but and I should mention, um, I should mention that this book is based on a series of newspaper articles that were published in the Cleveland News. They came out in July and August of 1948. Satchel Page is signed by the Indians on July 7th of 1948. He makes his first appearance on July 9th in Major League Baseball. And by the end of that month, he is already starting for the Indians and setting attendance records um, during, throughout that year. And so there was tremendous appetite for um, just all things Satchel Page. There was a writer by the name of Hal Leibovitz, who was a very young uh, Jewish writer for the Cleveland News. At that time, Cleveland had three newspapers, The Plain Dealer, The Cleveland Press, and The Cleveland News. Um, the Cleveland News was probably the most tabloidy of them all. Um, and so they decided to run sort of a sort of multi-part feature on the life and times of Satchel Page. And and the first few installments of this, I think the age, the, the chapter on aging was the first one that came out of the newspaper, were so popular that they were selling out of newspapers as soon as they hit the stands. So they were just having to print extras and extras and extras and extras of these. And the series that was only supposed to run a couple of installments just kind of kept going. And it was kind of a month-long or months-long sort of, sort of thing. And Hal Leibovitz was doing, I mean, Satchel Page was extremely popular wherever he was because he had traveled across the entire country and he knew people in all parts of, uh, of America. And so he would often, when he would, you know, go to whatever city the Indians were traveling to sort of melt into the, the black society of that, that city. And so Hal Leibovitz would sort of wait around his hotel room until like two or three in the morning when Satchel Page came home and then sort of force him to, uh, talk to him about these sort of anecdotes. And so Satchel Page himself was probably doing a lot of these at very late at night. Um, it wasn't like they were just sitting down at, at, during the clubhouse and things like that. Page was was not, he was distrustful of, of reporters. He did not like the lies that they told about him. He did not like their obsession with his age and his feet. Uh, he had very yeah. large. Um, he, he found all of that to be demeaning. And he thought that sort of white, reporters in particular were not to be trusted. Um, and so he would often sort of tell one anecdote to one person and another anecdote to another person, and they didn't line up. Um, yeah. He was very good at sort of deception and things like that. So Hal Leibovitz later in his life talked about the process of putting these together, and it was just a matter of chasing Page down and trying to get something out of him. And so the book that you have is, is a really odd artifact that is just kind of slapped together newspaper articles with a little bit of filling 
And it became, I think, essentially the first biography of a black ball player published by a white mainstream press. Um, yeah, and it was it was rushed out into stores immediately after the Indians won the World Series to capitalize on demand. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean that's that's the sort of power that Satchel Paige had um, in both white and black America at that time. Um, so we were going to circle back to the topic of barnstorming because that is something that um, I guess I just didn't know that much about before I read your work. And um, maybe listeners will also find it interesting as like one of the ways that um, segregated baseball was conducted and like how the lines were sort of blurred and maintained by that practice. Do you mind like reading that section from your book? This is listeners. This is from our team. This is from uh, Luke's book. Um. Yeah. I guess major leaguers on the barnstorming trail, Satchel Page's outings carried meaning beyond the box score. Baseball officials were aware that contests that pitted all white against all black squads could rattle the foundation of the sports color line. If Negro League players routinely routed their competition, segregation would become harder to justify. No one understood this better than Kennesaw Mountain Landis a longtime federal judge whose furrowed face and tuft of white hair gave him the appearance of an industry titan crossed with a revivalist preacher. Landis had assumed the commissionership of Major League Baseball in 1920 with a mandate to clean up a sport rocked by gambling scandals. Under a lifetime appointment during which he presided theatrically over the league with near unchecked powers, Landis enforced the racial status quo by practicing a form of public denial and private enforcement of the color line. For off-season barnstorming games, Landis laid down strict regulations. He restricted the number of days major league players could barnstorm. This allowed the use of league apparel, prevented three or more teammates from joining forces on one team, and demanded that all matchups be characterized as exhibitions. These rules signaled that barnstorming contests were to be thought of more as diversions than as serious sporting events. That attitude in turn helped shape the perception of black players among white fans and players. In their eyes, even when black barnstorming squads beat white ones, as often happened, the casual competition was no match for the supposed rigors of Major League Baseball. Most of us didn't believe Negro League players were equal to us players or that so many would become superstars, Pittsburgh Pirates slugger Ralph Kiner later wrote. There was a myth that they were primarily entertainers and that if they played for all the marbles, they wouldn't be nearly as competitive as we were. It was Satchel Paige who most vividly exposed the absurdity of that attitude. Um. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that that passage felt like it really connected well to this book. Is why I was hoping you would read it um, because there is that layer of this book that that feels like clowning and entertainment, and you know, like you were saying like little picaresque kind of um, anecdotes, and then also just relentless intelligence and athleticism um which is you know you were also saying like he's just working so many more days per year yeah than the than the white players in the major league um and so this is actually okay this is another thing that i was thinking while i was reading this is he has such a what doesn't kill me makes me stronger kind of mindset but he also seems to be working among other people who also have that feeling like when he starts playing he's throwing rocks and bricks um he's not playing with a baseball until he's like in his teen years and then it's when he's in reform school um and he gets the hesitation ball pitch by throwing bricks at people um yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, there's guys who still have a lump on their head where I threw a brick at them real good. <laughs> um, and like maybe their hats don't fly off, you know. Um, and that's so far from how we talk about head injuries now in general. Not that we don't give people head injuries now, but um, that sense that it's like everything is just something you just have to walk off, you know. And maybe this isn't a context where he could say that there's a severe downside to having no days off, you know, to yeah. be required to work so much harder, to not have proper training, to not have baseballs, to, you know, 
have an like there's a number of kids in his four room house when he's growing up that he actually doesn't remember all their names. Um, like when he's, you know, making his assessment of his childhood. Um, I think it's like a stepsister or something that he doesn't remember their name. Right. It's so far from the narratives that we would tell now about overcoming trauma, I guess. Yeah. It It's like, he just won't, like he won't allow that, that these circumstances could have made him less good, you know, that like he just, his level of excellence just has to be consistent. And he almost puts it outside himself. Like his level of excellence is something that happened to him, not something that he's doing. He says, I was born with this speed. I was born with this control. And in some ways that could be some of his, you know, like disavowal so that he appears to be like a clown or a big child, which he kind of is, pretending to be in various ways. But I also think that that's similar to a lot of ways people talk about talent in order to not become, uh, you know, to not choke, like to not become psychologically burdened by being overly uh, self-conscious about what you're doing. Like doesn't Elizabeth Gilbert also talk about like the idea of putting a muse as like a separate being to like take it away from yourself as much as possible. Yeah, it's that's those are all interesting sorts of observations, and I think that the most interesting that thing that I was that I was picking up on that you said there is that he wrote this book whenever he was still performing and performing at his highest level, and so his sort of analysis of what he's doing, um, you're right. Maybe he doesn't want to get too close to that um, in order to in order to sort of make himself feel self-conscious. I will say that he does publish another autobiography 20 years later in the sixties. And there he talks a lot more about when he was coming up. He, he doesn't mention in this book, but he gets, he gets sent away to a reform school for troubled boys. Um, And he spends most of his sort of high school years there, which ends up being the best thing that ever happened to him because he meets a coach who really takes him under his wing and teaches him how to do a windup, teaches him how to throw, all of these sorts of things. Then he gets onto his first major league team by a guy named Alex Herman, who is mentioned in this book. Um, And Alex Herman tells him that you do seem to have natural speed, but control is not natural. And so he he makes Paige do things like he'll line up a thing of milk cartons and have Paige knock them over. He'll have Paige throw a ball through a knot hole in a wall. He'll have Paige sort of throw balls over chewing gum wrappers and dimes and things like that. Things that Paige would then later do for the rest of his career. And so this sort of idea that Paige was a natural, which is what a lot of white uh, players and sports writers and everything in particular thought about black players at the time, that these were just sort of natural athletes, that they didn't have any training. They were just sort of performing to, you know, some sort of in- inherent innate ability. Um, he later, he later corrects that record. Um, but yeah. here, I think that because he's either playing or he is under the white gaze and it's being written through the guise of a white pen, um, yeah. that doesn't come across as much. And I should mention there's there's another sort of passage in my book where one of the people that Satchel Page barnstorms against constantly is a guy named Bob Feller. Bob Feller was the sort of ca- white counterpoint to Satchel Page. He was a sensation across uh America. He came up into the major leagues when he was the age 17. Um, he grew up in a farm on Iowa. In Iowa, his dad cleared off a, pas- a portion of his pasture and it built him basically the field, field of dreams right there on his farmland. Feller come, makes it to the Indians as a teenager. And in his very first start in the major leagues, he ties the American League record for strikeouts. He becomes so famous that his high school graduation the next year is broadcast live from coast to coast on NBC radio. Um, He is sort of an interesting counterpoint to Satchel Paige because the way that he has talked about, and he publishes a a biography a year before this one with Satchel Paige, he is this sort of avatar of the American dream of white values of sort of self-reliance, hard work, durable family bonds, all of these sorts of things that are you know, seemingly absent in the page story, even the hard work, it makes it seem like it's just innate that he just has it. Yeah. Um, 
And so they're very much sort of on these opposite ends of how we talk about a white superstar and how we talk about a black superstar. And the most interesting thing is that they both sort of recognize in each other that if they barnstormed together after the season, played games against one another after the World Series across the country and advertised these games as Bob Feller versus Satchel Paige. In other words, best white pitcher versus best black black pitcher guaranteed to face each other. They could make a ton of money. And that is simply what they did. They yeah. they formed, I think, not necessarily a friendship because Feller himself often disparaged Page's talents. He had this sort of white idea that if Satchel Page made it into the major leagues, he wouldn't be as good because he'd fold under the pressure or whatever. Um, they weren't really friends, but they formed a mutually beneficial financial arrangement. And they both sort of had this entrepreneurial streak in them that allowed them to put aside um, these feelings and come together to give audiences what they want. And it was during those games in particular with Feller versus Page that Page was really making the case for being a major leaguer because he was beating Feller consistently and Feller was far and away the best pitcher in the major leagues and, and Page was handling him. That is fascinating. Someone should write a book about that. <laughs> um, so I uh, I was going to ask also actually about, um, so two of the white players that are mentioned in this book, um, in uh, Paige's book, are um, Babe Ruth and um, Joe DiMaggio. Yeah. And Paige says that he never actually played, he never played um, at all in any way with Babe Ruth. Is that? That's that he like missed missed his chance by some. That is correct. Babe Ruth was barnstorming in the '30s um, across yeah. the country, but there is no there's no record that he ever played with Page. Page was also barnstorming at this time, but I don't believe their paths ever crossed. Um, but that he did actually. Um, sorry, I'm going to get the words wrong, and I'm embarrassed about how little baseball stuff I know. Um, okay. Pitch to Joe DiMaggio. Is that correct? Is that what the story was that he was telling? So I should mention that with Joe DiMaggio, he actually has a really interesting story about this. So one of the things that white major league executives used to do was during these barnstorming times, Page was not only pitching against major leaguers, but he was pitching against white minor leaguers. And so a lot of baseball executives would try to figure out when and where Page was pitching and then send their top prospects to face him because they wanted to see if these players could hit him. And so Joe DiMaggio, when he was still in the minor leagues in San Francisco, played against him the year before he made it onto the Yankees. And I think he went one for four and he got a sort of small single off of page, you know, not a big deal. But the Yankees executives were ecstatic. They wrote a they wrote a telegram to the front office in New York and said, Joe DiMaggio hit Satchel Page. He's ready. And yeah. so you got this sort of weird thing where these major league executives are at the same time, you know, denying the fact that these, these players were good enough to make it into their league or, you know, would be able to sort of survive and whatever, but at the same time using page as a way of seeing whether or not their prospects were ready. And so, you know, I mean, the contradictions and the, the, none of it makes, you know, a wit of sense, but you know, it's, it's mainly just prejudice, I guess. Well, it is. And I, I mean, obviously we're just reading about a profoundly racist situation. It makes me wish that it was not so difficult to read this kind of thing, yeah. you know, because it's like, this is somebody who is just, I mean, it reminds me like we, we did episodes on passing, but passing has been in the news a lot because of the new movie that came out. Um, the extreme sophistication of these women who are kind of living in this um, racist and sexist uh, environment and how much they're able to sort of bob and weave and, and um, make lives for themselves despite these um, just terrible, the terrible situation, you know, and yeah. in some ways that this feels like a document of that. Absolutely. But it yeah, is very uncomfortable sometimes. I should mention, too, that 
so the owner that signed Satchel Page to the major leagues was a guy named Bill Veck. He was uh, instrumental in breaking numerous color lines across the league. And he was, you know, he, he made friends with these individuals. Bill Veck and Satchel Page were friends throughout their entire lives. They would talk on the phone often. When Satchel Page's second autobiography was published in 1966, Bill Veck at that time was out of baseball and he was a syndicated newspaper columnist. And so he decided to dedicate one of his columns to this new Satchel Page book. And what he wrote about, I found really fascinating because he thought the second book did not sound like Satchel Page. He thought the book was too bitter. He thought that the book was too, um, he thought that the book was too sour. And the sort of second autobiography of Page, which is one that he had a lot more control over, he talks deeply in that book about how when Jackie Robinson was signed by the Dodgers organization, he was deeply and profoundly hurt. He yeah. felt in him a sadness that he had never known. And it was simply because I think that he thought that if it was ever going to happen, and by that time he doubted it ever was, he was the one that deserved it. He was the one that sort of opened up these avenues. He was the one that all the barnstormers wanted to play against. He was the one that could pack stadiums. He was the one that had crossed over into the white mainstream. And so this second autobiography that he does contains a lot more sort of, I guess, what Bill Vett called bitter, but what Satchel Paige, I, I would say, was much more sort of honest and hurtful feelings at yeah. that time. That whenever he was playing and he, when he was active, he was always trying to cover up through humor or through um, accommodation or any of these other sorts of things. And so whenever even somebody like Bill Vack, who was probably the closest white friend that Satchel Page had, read his autobiography, he's like, I don't recognize this man. And it's simply because white America had not seen that man. Um, it's so it's interesting. Crushing. It's really yeah. upsetting. It's, it's interesting to read the two autobiographies next to each other because this one in 1948, as, as we've talked about, is, is very much written for the white gaze by a white writer interpreting Satchel Page, and I'm assuming editing Satchel Page and things like, like the that. number of times that they use the wrong word. Like, I mean, yeah. there's like the there's Strong a bunch spelling. of like folksy misspellings, but there's also just like fully just substituting a different word that's like incorrect usage. And I just I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like it's quite a document. It is quite a document. Yeah. This book is, um, I don't think it's read very often right now. And, you know, I think that we're, we've gotten at the reasons why. His second autobiography certainly still is. His second autobiography, I should mention, is called Maybe I'll Pitch Forever. It's much longer. It's over 200 pages. It has a much fuller sort of take on his career. But if, if people want to sort of get a sense of how Satchel Page was talked about, was written about, um, was, uh, you know, interpreted, I think you can't do any better than this this book. This really gives a sense of how he was depicted at the time in the mainstream press. Yeah, I I also found it like just really interesting, you know, beyond the upsettingness of it, um, the process document of how he thinks about baseball and how he thinks about what he's doing while he's pitching. Um, I just thought it was fascinating, you know? Like, yeah, I think that is, yeah. And I also think it's fascinating that he he seems very aware also of how he might be interpreted. And so you see him at numerous times in this book just reiterating, I am no clown. I am not an end man in a, in a vaudeville play. I'm not this, I'm not that. Like, he knows that this is the way that they're going to want to portray him. And so he is, he's putting out these very direct statements to sort of make sure all of that is undercut. Um, so he, he's not obviously unaware of, of what these, this series of articles, how he's going to be depicted in them. And he's trying to assert some form of um, direction and agency over that. Yeah, and um, and also how he wants the interpretation of his name Satchel as opposed to you know right. Leroy. Um, the Satchel he doesn't like being called Satchel Foot because it implies that it's just the sides of his feet that are why he gets that name when really he is saying he got the name through this sort of clever way of porting more satchels to earn a dime for each one that he could carry. Yeah. He carried more, and it's like this yeah. 
on the one hand, terrible story about child labor and the depression. And on the other hand, it's like, it is a story of cleverness and resourcefulness. Um, and when he's talking about, you know, getting older and his skills deteriorating just from his body changing. Um, and it, so he's talking about the mental game that he can, you know, leveling up his mental game as an athlete. And he describes that as being cute. Um, which is like, if you can put aside how uncomfortable that is and how much you want him to not have to say that about himself, um, as a document of a mental game, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. He's, I mean, like he's, I, I think, I, I really don't know if we've seen a more sort of entrepreneurial athlete than this guy. I mean, I, we, we can talk about what Michael Jordan did to sort of take his shoe brand and build this billion dollar corporation. I, I think it's, it's nothing compared to what Satchel Page was faced against and the way that he sort of went through a process of invention and, you know, just sort of creating a narrative and a persona that became so powerful that it's, the president of the United States is still talking about it. Like he, he's a, he's a really, what he was able to do with himself during the very short period in which an athlete is active is amazing. And is just, you know, a a tremendous, um, it really points to the, the, the sharp intelligence and just incredible mind behind behind that. And, and I think we all recognize that now, but obviously when this book was coming out, I think that a lot of people didn't. All right. That's all for our Satchel Page episode. Thank you to Luke for joining me. And as always, thank you to Adam Bear for our music and to everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. Thank you listeners for reading and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Please also tweet us at LitCenturyPod or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next week. 